32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Ina. My name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. But this week's county is not a county at all. It's Oscar Trainer Road. And this and week... This- Go on, Andrea. Go on. What's the question? Thanks, Amelia. Can I say something? This week's question. Why can't we build gaffs like the old days? Huh? Um, Before we get on to all of that, the usual shenanigans, Patreon, get going. We're not going to go on about it. You know about it. Uh, Give us a review if you want to on iTunes. Uh, We know how arbitrary that all is. However, do it. Um, Sunday Soothe, again, the vibes we're getting from the Sunday suit, I think myself and Una are going to end up being like like calming, meditative uh, people. Yeah, we should really we need to get into corporate wellness stuff. Wellness, that's where we're going. Who thought that's where our journey would bring us, but that's where we're off to. Um, and very the opposite of how soothing our Sunday suit is. Thank you to everyone actually about for all the messages about the Sunday suit. It really is nice to get those messages um, and we're glad that it is helping and it is doing the job that we wanted it to do to start off your week um, on a soothing tone and to kind of verbalise what we're feeling and thinking. Mm. But less soothing than that, the bonus episode this week about Facebook moderators. Um, Ina? Do you want to take that? Yeah, if you haven't listened to that yet, um, go for it. Obviously, big health warning on it. Uh, It is about, it is an interview with an ex-Facebook moderator. Um, A lot of the things that they describe in detail are upsetting and distressing in terms of extreme violence and things like that. So uh, if you're not able for that, like it is quite an intense listen. So just a warning. Um, But it is very well worth listening to um, and thanks for all of the messages on that as well and it's funny because it kind of comes at a week where there's I think there's 200 Facebook moderators have now circulated this letter within Facebook um, there's an organisation called Foxglove that kind of works for like ethical tech things and supporting tech workers uh, who have been out uh, talking about that it's in the New York Times this week as well so the timing around whether we may start to confront um, the, the conditions and rights of workers in this uh, sector of big tech seems to be coming to fruition. Hopefully it is. Are so, you yeah. saying that our bonus app brought around this uh, big New York Times article and uh, Fox Gloves campaign? I think that goes without saying, Andrea. We have spoken a lot uh, on WhatsApp with each other about how psychic we are, that we tend to drop episodes when uh, in anticipation of things. Um, So, yeah. I I, I don't think we're psychic. I think it's the energy of the world moving in conjunction with our with our thoughts. And there is one thought. Is this, have you watched that Katie Holmes version of The Secret again? Is this what this is about? No, this is my spirituality for the Sunday Sooth kicking in. That's just a taster. Sign up for more. (laughs) (laughs) So now, Andrea, what is the state of the nation? Well, you know, there's there's quite a state of the nation this week. Um, Actually, it's been relatively quiet. Um, The main state of the nation was, for me, 
the fact that shenanigans on South William Street were influencing potential policies being made. And now, as a resident of South William Street, I do know it is the centre of the universe and that a lot of policy does come from St. William Street, and it does shape the nation. Um, however, <laughs> the fact that a video that was taken on St. William Street of groups, and the police were, the, the guardie were there saying that people, there was no COVID restriction rules being broken, people were in their groups or whatever, um, but that brought a memo from Stephen Donnelly that there should maybe be... Um, fines for people who are drinking outside on South William Street and that it would be brought nationwide. Um, uh, yeah, so I think Twitter is now ruling the world. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it, uh, the initial direction came from the Department of Taoiseach, but it does feel like another example of Stephen Donnelly wasting everyone's time. Um, and you can't just be making fines for things that are already illegal on the basis of not a very dramatic video of people hanging around South William Street. And if you're, you know, as you say, Andre, if you're kind of legislating or making regulations on that basis, oh, it's kind of ridiculous, really. I mean, the same amount, like many more people, many more people will be walking down, you know, our busy shopping streets across Ireland um, when retail opens up again. So, you know. It's just the fact that people are, having fun it's this feels like we're legislating against fun and drinking and maybe this is our time that we should maybe look at the fact that drinking on the street is illegal and um, now obviously there's a lot of problems that come about with the lack of toilets but maybe we need to look at the lack of toilets that are on the street for people who, who aren't going inside but also for homeless people who are homeless and um and living on the streets and instead of maybe cranking down on outdoor drinking, that maybe it is something we should be looking to open up, in fact. 100%. It's absolutely ridiculous um, that it's that it's illegal. So anyway, um, messiness is the kind of flavour of the day, I suppose, in the state of the nation, in that there's more um, reports about rifts uh, and, you know, differing opinions between uh, Nefesh and government and other officials with regards to how uh, lo like lockdown will be eased, how level five restrictions will kind of, um, some of them will open up and what that looks like. And that, you know, government making it clear to Dr. Tony that it's them that'll be calling the shot and shots and not Dr. Tony. I know it's obviously not personal, but it feels like a lot of what happened the last time was pocketed and held over till this moment to be like, ha ha, now who's the boss? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Um, some good news, I think, for Ireland is that when you look at the very worrying trends across Europe, I suppose this isn't really good news for Ireland. That's kind of a selfish thing, but it's making me feel grateful for the fact that we locked down when we did. Um there's 700 and something deaths, you know, on Wednesday in Italy this week, 500 and something in the UK. Um, and I know that our cases are rising and that they <clears throat> have you know, passed that very grim, grim number of over 2000 people uh, dying from COVID in Ireland. So terrible. Um, and especially like you're just, your heart would go out to, to everybody who suffered a loss Um and at the same time, it does feel that we aren't in a situation where the virus is out of control here. 
and it just kind of proves, I guess, that lock lockdown locking down does work, even though it is very blunt. Um, and obviously, it would be better if we kind of knew more about the virus in terms of where it's spreading in Ireland, and you know, having more nuanced, bespoke, um, specific uh, regulations around that. But you know, I guess. Hold on for the next few weeks and see what happens. Um, what else? I feel there's going to be uh, a kickback um, in terms of people who aren't seeing it in their direct um, vision or or have been affected by it directly are going to really start pushing back, which when you see what's happening in other places and when it's just in terms of a selfish uh, way of like, well, I haven't seen anything, so it must be grand. Mm. That is definitely going to be something to watch. What else is going on in the state of the nation? Uh, This is just a bizarre situation um, where the SIPO appointment of the ex-NAGB GP lobbyist went ahead and SIPO are responsible for uh, looking into the shenanigans, I suppose. Would we call them that? Yeah. Standards. (laughs) (laughs) That went on um, with the leaking documents to the NAGP. So um, it was supported by the Greens, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, surprising. Um, But yeah, I think that's just an interesting curve of how things work really in 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 broad vision Hmm. and finally the final state of the nation the zoo came out and said they were in uh they were potentially going to close because their operating costs are like five hundred thousand a week to feed all the animals that are in there a month Uh, fake news andrea (laughs) uh but there's a lot of questions around zoos and the ethics of them, etc. But what it does raise is that at the same time, we have the news of how much money is being spent on greyhound racing. And I personally have been meaning to talk about this because I just don't understand why we invest so much in greyhound racing. I think we need to do a greyhound pod. But why? Is it I, like, is there one line or like, there's no support for the zoo yeah, which benefits so many kids, schools, education, blah, blah, blah. And then Greyhound Racing gets lashed out of it with money. Um, I just, I can't comprehend it. But Holly Kearns was on uh, the radio the other day um, and she was really good. And it turned out she went up with an ex-Greyhound lobbyist. Um, but you had a, an interesting comment in a, about the property. Oh, well, I was just um, asking Holly Kearns uh did anybody ever find out what happened or the reason for the discrepancy in the price of um, the Harold's Cross Greyhound racing track? So that was sold or was bought by the Department of Education um, for 23 million euro, even though the land was actually valued at 12 million euro. Um, now, it was valued at 12 million euro, should it have been planned for housing and 6 million euro were to be planned for recreation. Now the department is building a school on it. So presumably, you know, it's somewhere between six and 12. Um, But I don't know why like that happened. I think it's just this shadow of like, what is going on financially with greyhound racing? Well, I think the the board board Nagan, which is like the 
greyhound board they used some of the money i think it was like 16 million quid from that sale to like uh pay off this debt that they had with aib i just don't know why a government department would buy something at effectively twice the cost of the people's own valuation of it um yeah let's do an episode on on Greyhound, the shadowy, the shadowy world of and dogs. And we have one sentence of why it's like why it gets so much support. Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, nothing. Nothing. Yeah, tell me why does it get so much support? What? I don't get it. I don't have anything that's not going to be defamatory, basically. <laughs> so let's move on to some good news. <laughs> the good news this week: there is another vaccine uh, making headlines by a company called Moderna and another company called Sanofi has two vaccines in trial. So this is all good news for people who are really, really gunning with the L, savior narrative of the vaccine. But obviously the vaccine is is a good thing. Vaccine. I'm living for the like, oh, our vaccine is 94.5% effective. Oh, really? Our one is 95%. Oh, actually, we've just finished another trial and now it's 95.5%. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Well, there's going to be plenty. There's room for them all. There's room for all of the vaccines. Sure. Um, I suppose then the broader conversation then is like issues around supply, distribution, storage. The Pfizer one, I think, needs to be stored at minus 70 and the Moderna one minus 20. The logistics of vaccinating billions of people and the logistics of not just anti-vaxxers, but like, what was that? We were looking, sharing an article this week. We, we just share articles in our WhatsApp. Of uh, It's not just anti-vaxxers, it's vaccine apprehensive. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, interesting times ahead to see how that is rolled out. And there are rumblings of questions being asked by the poor citizens and people who live in uh, Great Britain because obviously they're Brexiting and that will cause them supply chain issues. Um, There's already supply chain issues with medication uh, in the UK. My uncle has been really desperately trying to get um, prescriptions fulfilled and he can't with Brexit. There's another episode. What's another good news piece? The best news uh, Wagatha Christie, the case has reached court. So the famous It's Rebecca Vardy case uh, has come to fruition and we shall be watching that with a lot of interest. Excellent. Well, I will, anyway. You will. <laughs> I won't. Um, but I'll check back in with you to see what happens. I okay. it's really interesting in terms of like what people are doing with their privacy and social media and all that kind of jazz that goes with it. Yeah, fair. Okay, so now we are getting to our topic of the week. Okay, so Oscar Trainer, this will be a road that you've been hearing maybe a good bit about this week. Uh, some background on it and why we're we're discussing it. So basically, there was a hundred or sorry, eight hundred and fifty homes uh, planned on this site uh, that's in kind of Santry, Kulak. Um, it is one of the largest uh, sites owned by Dublin City Council and Glenvey, which is a private developer, were looking for a deal to be approved. The councillors uh, this week voted against the plan to sell the site 
um, <clears throat> and or to basically like do a deal with the developer. Uh, this was a labor motion that la- the labor party were, were basically saying that the site should be developed directly by the council. Now, what you always hear in these kind of conversations is like loads of Fine Gael councillors um, like Ray McAdam and people like that being like, this is a terrible night for Dubliners, <laughs> this kind of stuff. And um, what I thought was the worst was actually the reporting of it when it came down of like a deal has fallen through plans for 853 Dublin homes collapse after councillors refused to re- approve the deal it's like if they don't do the deal we're not getting any houses because it's all just collapsed and fallen yeah so this is all how it's presented as these very binary things like the councillors weren't actually voting on you know to build or not to build houses they're voting on that the council develop their land themselves now we've found ourselves in this situation a bunch of times before Odevney Gardens the Bartra deal uh, is a good example of that but it's it's just very it's like we're dealing with um decisions that were made a few years ago when you know builders and developers were like we can't possibly build it's suddenly the most expensive thing in the world and we need you to like do all this shit for us so that we can build houses even though that's our entire profession um and there's um, like more and more research coming out this year about um what bad value it is for uh councils to be buying or paying private developers to build, for example, social housing, as opposed to them doing it themselves. And then buying it back. Yeah, exactly. And then buying it back. So there's uh, the latest uh, figures from the Department of Housing itself um, is that some local councils are paying private developers up to €400,000 for for one kind of social housing unit um, where when the councils themselves can build them directly at half the price. Um, there's been a bunch of different studies with regards to the cost uh, that that basically the, the council infrastructurally seems to be unable to build directly. They take their public land, they do these sweet ass deals with developers who then build on that land uh, not just social housing or public housing, of course, in order for the developer to make it worth their while, extremely worth their while in some cases, they also build a lot of private housing that they then sell themselves or rent themselves, like build to rent stuff. And then the council then has to buy back the social housing that has been built on the land that they actually owned um, at a much more inflated cost, basically, than what it w- would cost for themselves. So this is like the this core... Uh, ideological issue. Do, do councils build themselves and can we refacilitate them in doing that or do we continue to have private developer-led housing provision? Um, the- One of the pushbacks as well though has been that if you put in only social housing or public housing that it turns into a ghetto feel. And I think one of the Uh, people we're going to talk to today talks about how that has been done in the past and how it it hasn't resulted in that. Yeah. Um, So we're going to talk to um, uh, somebody or Maria O'Reilly and talk about a good example from back in the day of public housing building in the tenters. And then we're going to... When there was no coffers. 
No money in the coffers no back money, then. No money in the coffers. And then we're going to talk to Orla Hegarty. Um, the largest woman on the internet. Yeah, totally. Friend of the pod, um, who has a lot to say on, on the kind of planning uh, part of this stuff. So let's go. Now, we are going to talk about uh, Dublin's most ambitious public housing scheme, built when the country was on its knees, but which is still standing proud nearly 100 years later. That is the Tenters. We are going to be talking to Maria O'Reilly. Maria completed the Lord Mayor's Certificate in Local Studies in uh, Dublin City Library and Archives in Pierce Street, and her chosen subject was the area she grew up in and still lives today. Uh, Tenters was formerly known as the Fairbrothers Fields Housing Scheme. Hi, Maria. How are you? I'm good, Andrea. I'm good. Thanks a million for joining us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Tenters? Like, where is it? What is it? Uh, where did it get its name? When did it become the Tenters from Fairbrothers Fields? Sure. So uh, the Tenters is an area in Dublin's Liberties on the south side of uh, Dublin City. It's bordered by the South Circular Road, the Basel Street, Cork Street and Denor Avenue. Um, it's made up of a selection of roads, streets, avenues and terraces. And under the umbrella of the Tenter's name, uh, we have some 700 houses and over 400 of them belong to a housing scheme, which used to be known as the Fairbrothers Fields Housing Scheme. And it's this area um, that I've studied in depth. And it was this group of houses that was built by the Corporation of Dublin, specifically for the working class of Dublin. And, and that um, construction started in 1922. So we're going to celebrate our centenary in 2022. Um, but the, the Tenter's name, it's an interesting one. So it's it started unofficially in the late 1930s. Um, so from working backwards over the last 400 years, the area uh, has been known as Fairbrothers Fields, and that was named after the family who owned the lands. Um, and then... It was used as it was laid out as Tenterfields, and this was um, this was when the area was really industrious, and especially in the weaving industry. So tenters were great big wooden structures, and they were used to stretch uh, lengths of locally produced cloth on hooks to dry out in the open air in the fields. Amazing. Um, so you mentioned there it was built by Dublin Corporation in 1922. How did this development come about and what was it made up of? Um, and there's particular types of housing in there that was very uh, particular in terms of the way the rooms were laid out with parlours and everything. So could you just tell us, I suppose, a bit about how it came about? Sure. So um, my research involved a lot of time spent looking over the minutes and report books of the Corporation of Dublin. So the first plans that I came across um, were submitted um, and they were dated in January 1914. Uh, the original proposal to build was made prior to the Church Street tenement collapse in 1913, whereby seven people lost their lives. Um, and, and Dublin City itself was in a desperate situation in relation to safe housing for its poorer inhabitants. So tenement living was proven to be very unsafe and unsanitary. And the working class of Dublin were deemed to be the most appropriate for this new housing scheme at Fairbrothers Fields. Um, the corporation acquired lands, but it took a further 12 years before construction started in 1922, and it took about two years to complete. So understandably, a lot happened in those intervening years. 
the First World War, the East Horizon, the War of Independence, and of course, the Irish Civil War. Um, a lot of Dublin was destroyed as a result. So the corporation found themselves unable to build the housing scheme that they had originally planned to build themselves. So they put it out to tender. Um, and there was three different uh, construction companies involved. And, and the plan was, was very radical and very different. Um, the design of, of, of the housing scheme was very different um, to what was built before. Normally, they were very um, rigid, um, very linear, um, but this was absolutely uh, brand spanking new. It was loosely based on the um, garden suburb idea. And, and that involved um, lots of different house designs, um, different orientation, uh, cul-de-sacs. You know, you went up cul-de-sac and had, you, you couldn't drive through it um, or, or walk through it. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a beautiful um, and state of art uh, at the time. Um, the houses themselves were all had to have... Um, a parlour, and, and that was very unusual for the time as well. Um, they had great foresight. Um, the city architects, there was two involved. There was Charles McCarthy and there was Horace O'Rourke. He went on then to, to build in Marino. Um, but the, the foresight was fantastic with design. Um, all houses had either an inside toilet or an outside one. They had at least five rooms. and One of them, I mentioned, had to have a parlour. And that was a dream home for those who had been... Uh, former tenant, uh, tenement inhabitants. So the, the design was perfected um, in Marino um, because it was a much bigger scale that they built in Marino compared to the Fairbrothers Fields um, housing. Um, like you're, you mentioned it celebrated centenary. So how, what makes it such a successful project, even now, like 100 years later? Oh. Um, yeah, um, to me, um, it's a very simple answer um, insofar that it was built with the foresight um, to what a community needed. So while the Corporation of Dublin set out to relieve the housing crisis that was of the period, uh, the 12 year delay um, to build really, really helped. So with all that was going on in, in the intervening years, intervening years, sorry, um, I think it caused them to pause and reflect what they really wanted for the inhabitants of the new free state. Uh, they wanted to rebuild communities. So the people of Dublin had been living in really unsuitable accommodation for far too long. Dirt and disease were a direct result of these living conditions and TB was rampant. And we had just, in, in those years, had just come out of the Spanish flu epidemic. So the communities themselves had been destroyed and they wanted to not only build houses, but to nourish what had been missing, that sense of community pride and place. Um, and, and the plans that had first been submitted that I spoke about in 1914, they were considerably readjusted and not only reduced um, in size, density by half, actually. The layout and style of the housing scheme was, was just a really beautiful, beautiful design. And the project uh, ran over budget, um, but it was it was kind of a glory project, I suppose, for the Irish Free State. And why why were they kind of trying to show off with this? Yeah, well, from what I can gather, um, it certainly did go over budget. And and when you look at um, through all the minute books, you know you can you can see all the meetings and and what was discussed. So I, I reckon it was um, the original budget was added to during the construction phase, 
And there's a number of reasons that I see um, that would indicate why and how that came about. So the finance had been approved while Ireland was still under British rule, but it was the new free state government um, which oversaw its construction. So certainly their vision for what the housing scheme represented um, is very apparent. This was to be the very first tenant purchase housing scheme to be built under the Irish um, new Irish government. Uh, it was their chance to showcase uh, what the new free state could do for their people. And, and they really took their chance and rode with that idea. Um, and, and another thing which really stood out for me was when the tenders were uh, put out for the construction contractors, and there was a requirement that all the materials and labour were to be as local as the contractors could get. And that ensured a positive outcome for Irish and most notably Dublin businesses and, and people. So cheaper materials that could have been sought elsewhere were not automatically used. And that reflected in, in costs too. Like what? There was the Wicklow granite and there was the yeah. Dolphin Barn bricks. Yeah, so we had... Um, I, I always remember growing up with the Wicklow granite um, windowsills that we had, you know. I mean, they could have used cement. You, you know, cement uh, was used um, from during that period to quite a lot, but it was stipulated um, that it had to be really good quality. Um, and I have a memory of my uh, great uncle who lived with us because it was a, a family home. We were original uh, tenant portraiters. Um, he used to... Uh, you know, scrape the 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 one really good knife that we had in the house, and and he would sharpen that on the granite. And I always that's a that's a memory I have um, of that. And and the Dublin uh, Brick Company, which was only situated up here in Dolphins Barn, uh, just if you continue on up to Dolphins Barn around Drimna area, um, I've seen the the um, the invoices for up to four million bricks that they used from that local company. Yeah, and. You talk about the tenant purchase scheme. I'm going to ask you to explain what that is. But also when we're talking about running over budget, I suppose that tenant purchase scheme plays into that in terms of whilst it may have had more of an outlay, the long-term value mm. stands to this development in terms of how it re resulted in the community with the tenant purchase scheme. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like that idea of the tenant purchase scheme. So, there was because there were so many different styles of houses and that resulted in different materials being used during, during construction. So the houses themselves varied in style and price. Um, so rent was calculated on a household's income, a total income in the household um, so that a realistic rent could be achieved. Um, and terms were mostly uh, 40 years. And when you look through the deeds and I, I've gone down to the Registry of Deeds and, and looked through some of them, just get an idea because there's not that much material um, to be found when you're researching uh, the Fairbrothers Fields uh, housing scheme. Uh, there's much more if you're looking at the Merino um, houses. But anyway, the um, the leases would have ended in the mid-1960s generally and, and ownership of the property then transferred from the Corporation of Dublin to the individual tenant purchaser. That only cemented the feeling of pride and place in the tenters area. Um, and, and then it released the transfer of ownership also released the corporation from the maintenance costs for the properties, which in other social housing projects um, that you can see that that can continue for the entire property's lifetime. So that that has to be a plus, you know, so it, it, it sort of balances um, the overspend 
as in balances out with the long-term costs. And also the creation of community and pride. Yeah. And and yeah. All that goes along with that. Absolutely. Uh, something that I think is really nice about the area as well is where all the names of the streets come from. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that was... Um, that was actually a moment um, I, I was studying for um, my genealogy certificate in UCD and, and I had a reading list of Irish historians um, and genealogists. And that was my moment when I sort of went, oh, this this is, you know, unusual. So the names of like Gil- Gilbert and, and O'Curry and, and O'Donovan and all those names of historians were coming up and, and I was saying, well, that's a road where I live or that's a street where I live. Um, so yeah, most of the streets names uh, within the tenters, um, they're the, the section that was the, F- the fair brothers housing scheme. So the tenters umbrella, you know, it goes, it, it, it's gone over an area. Um, but, but the fair brothers housing scheme area, um, they were named after mostly after Irish historians, poets and musicians, and with the exception of two of them. And then there's a couple of roads that were named after existing uh, roads uh, that they adjoined. Um, and some examples would be, um, as, as far as the historians go, like uh, Gilbert and O'Curry, and then we have O'Carolan, we have Madden Road. Uh, we have St. Thomas's Road. That was the main avenue, but that was named as a way of recognition to the Abbey of St. Thomas. And the area was owned, the lands were owned by, by the Abbey of St. Thomas previously. Um, and then, of course, we have Oscar Square. And um, contrary to um, some some people think it was named after Oscar Wilde or Oscar Trainer, um, it was named actually after Oscar, son of Ushin, and he was one of the leaders of the Fianna. So that, that was a really great nod to to Irish. Well, like, it sounds like quite the utopian development in yeah. terms of the focus that was on the community, the, like, the addition of musicians and artists and historians, and then the giving of ownership to the people who lived in the houses, the, like, the shape of the houses. But what's it like to live there now? Oh, absolutely fantastic. I mean, I I know that I'm very, very um, privileged. Um, So my family on both sides, my mother's and my dad's family, um, both um, my my mom's family, they're original tenant purchasers. My dad's family came into the area in the early or mid 1930s. So I've always grown up with that sense of pride and place. Um, but it's really apparent to, for me to see the the change um, uh, in, in within the community with newer people coming in and, and older people maybe you know some of them dying out over the years that I, that I've been here. Um, but that sense of pride and place is is it's, it's in the DNA of, of the area, um, and it's very very apparent when you're walking around. I'm I would be quite involved within the community um, and. It's just a really lovely, lovely place, and it's something that you can't you can't see or touch, um, but you certainly can feel it um, when you're living here. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Maria, for that. That sounds amazing, and it's really interesting to see the effects of something a hundred years on, and the fact that it's still the, those houses that have been built are still there. When we were speaking about some of the like Teresa's gardens that were gone, etc., yeah. that there was the longevity and what it's created in the community. So thanks a million for joining us and sharing all that with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot.
So Orla Hegarty, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me. What's your read on what happened uh, on Oscar Trainer with regards to the initial plans and how they've now ended up with with the councillors uh, voting against um, the the deal with the with the developer? I suppose. Well, I, I think um, I suppose there's, there's, there's a lot of um, misreporting in some ways around what the vote uh, uh, actually was, um, and, and I think maybe it's important maybe to explain that to people first. Um, the the uh, administration side of the council can put together um, deals for housing or deals with developers, uh, but the actual transfer of public land into um, uh, private hands um, is something that has to be voted by the councillors themselves. So the vote, um, the vote that was rejected, um, was that the control or the ownership of that land would be given to a private developer. So what the councillors were effectively saying is they weren't voting against housing, they were saying that they wanted to keep control of the land to ensure that the housing was delivered, that they had control of the price um, and that they had control of the means by which you know that was being built. So um, it, it was being presented, I suppose, in a lot of places as being that they objected to the housing. Um, I don't think that was the case at all. I think everybody wants more housing um, and uh, that wasn't the issue. And it, the really what the vote was about was whether they lost control of the project or not. Mm. It's kind of hard to control that narrative when an awful lot of councillors from Fine Gael in particular were coming out and saying, oh, you know, this is a terrible night for Dublin and we're not, you know, we need to be building housing. And, and also when you have Micheál Martin saying councillors need to leave their ideologies aside uh, and vote for more housing to be built. But voting for deals with private developers and public lands is an ideological choice as well. It is, yeah, and it's, it's kind of ironic because people will remember back around the time of the election, uh, one of the big uh, issues that was being discussed was getting more land for housing that was affordable, and people were um, uh, reigniting the discussion about the Kenny report back from the 1970s, which would have allowed, if it had, if it had been uh, accepted at the time, would have allowed the state to buy agricultural land at uh, affordable price um, and not at the market price uh, in order to to keep the price of housing down. Now, that didn't happen, but people regularly bring that up and say, really, this is what we should do because if we can control the price of land for housing, we can make all housing more affordable. Um, So it's ironic that in a situation here where public land was being moved into private ownership, it's actually the reverse of that. Um, And, you know, that really hasn't been what came to the fore. And I think, you know, a lot of the uh, talk about, you know, there's been so much, I suppose, spin in some ways around this about what the vote was about but also about the percentages of of, of public and private housing um, and in some ways conflating two quite different things I think. I mean how you build housing efficiently uh, in order that you don't spend too much money is, is sort of a separate conversation to how people who live there in the future will pay for their homes. Mm, that's a good point. To, we don't have to make the two things um, joined and, and they're only really I suppose, being connected in people's minds because of how these deals are being put together with different percentages. But um, there's no reason that has to be the case. It does seem that like we're having this conversation over and over again. What is the best way to deliver public housing? It seems that councillors, particularly in Dublin, are struggling to make peace with deals that were done uh 
basically in the depth of recession when we were just kind of told that building was was nigh on impossible. Um, is it a case that the mistakes have already been made and these votes and the discourse around them is an untangling or an even deeper tangling of those uh, decisions that were made at, at the time? Um, I, I suppose it's just to, to untangle it a little bit. Um, there are different there are different forces controlling these decisions. I mean, the city council doesn't doesn't pay for this, the housing. The funding comes from the Department of Housing, so that comes from central government. So we will have seen that in in the O'Devany, which was the previous deal that um, was controversial, and again on another piece, a large tract of of public land. Um, the councillors in that situation felt that they they voted for a deal that they weren't terribly happy with uh, because they were promised funding um, if they voted for the deal and they felt the urgency of of having housing development on that site uh, I suppose uh, made them accept something that wasn't optimum um, so so you know there are other uh, forces at play here as well I think in relation to funding the development and um, and and then again there's you know uh, so you, you kind of have th- several different things at play at once and and often you know you'll find misinformation about some of that and, and how it's actually working um, and, and I think sometimes the issue of you know you're going back to the more recession years when people said we don't have any money to do this um, I, I think people can, can sometimes think of housing as again a very big development like building a university or a hospital or you know a large piece of infrastructure I mean if, if you're committing to something that's hundreds of millions for those types of development you do need to have all the money um, because you can't get any use out of the building or the infrastructure or the motorway until it's finished um, housing is completely different. Uh, you just need seed funding, really, because it's in really small incremental pieces. And you know, if you uh, any small developer will know this, if you build the the first terrace of ten at the front of an estate, um, you can sell them, and that that pays for the next phase. So you you don't really need to borrow all the money or to have all of the money. And as soon as you occupy houses, whether somebody is paying rent at full rate to cover the cost and a cost rental or whether they have a subsidised rent or whether they're paying a mortgage on it, um, you know, that piece of the that piece of infrastructure is paying for itself as soon as it's finished. Um, so it's not like other building types. And the idea of outsourcing housing into private developers, um, you know, in the idea that they will bring all the money and it wouldn't happen unless they brought all the money um, is, is kind of misleading because we, we don't really need um, huge amounts of money to instigate housing. You know, um, like, say, you know, 10 million going to 10 small builder developers um, will allow each of them to build four or five houses, you know, if they get a million each. And then they just keep rolling over that money into the next phase and the next phase, you know. So um, you can you can leave a lot of value out of, um, you know, relatively modest amounts of investment if you do it carefully. Um, so I think the argument of having to bring in foreign investors at a very high cost uh, doesn't really stack up. You know, and even less so now that we can borrow freely. So why are we locked into this kind of almost binary choice? Like you hear, certainly, you know, famously, Owen Murphy, when he was the minister around the Bartra deal at O'Devany's, was saying, you know, there is no plan B. It's this or nothing. And we're kind of hearing this rhetoric again from um, even Brandon Kenny, the head of housing in Dublin City Council, with regards to the Oscar Trainer uh, 
quote unquote deal that this has to happen now where the whole thing's going to fall apart and it'll be five years till we're, b- till we're back here again. I mean, I just don't understand. Well, it doesn't really stack up. I mean, you know, if, if you asked any school out there, you know, if, if somebody turned up tomorrow with 300,000 and, and you can build an extension for next September, um, would they make it happen? Very inexperienced principals and boards of management would, would make it happen by going out and, you know, hiring an architect and a design team and finding out how to do it and just getting on with it. Now, the City Council um, have even more leverage than that in that they effectively grant planning permission to themselves, um, which is a shorter process than a typical planning permission or, or can be. Um, and, uh, you know, and their public procurement rules, actually, the most of the barriers and delay are in our local procedures in Ireland. They're not to do with the European um, rules. So all of these things in systems with delay that he's talking about are all fixable. Um, they're all things that can be overcome here with just if the will was there. So, you know, to take that example of, of having to do turn something around quickly, the only regulated timescales that will delay housing on that site are the city council giving themselves permission in a public consultation that you know once it's designed could be done in a couple of months um, and and public procurement rules from Europe, which again could very easily be done in a couple of months. The time periods are quite short. So if the will was there and they wanted to split up that site with multiple smaller builder developers um, on portions of the site, um, that could all happen very, very quickly. I think where they're tying themselves into these enormous delays is by building enormous deals that take an incredibly long amount of time to negotiate but also end up having very little competition in them. Um, you know, they're structured in such a way that only maybe two or three big players can get involved and that immediately means that you tend to get higher prices and that things take forever to go through um, you know, due diligence and, and writing contracts. Um, you know, the key is actually to do what EU procurement policy recommends, which is uh, not to bundle things up into big contracts, is to break them down into small pieces, spread the risk around, you know, don't put all eggs in one basket and and turn things around quickly without a heavy admin burden because at the end of the day it's the same builders and trades people and subcontractors who will turn up at that site whether they're working for a large developer or whether they're working for a small builder it's the same people who will build this these sites out um, and so it, the, the question about the setting up the deals is how many middlemen and layers of the kind of management and funding you put into the structure um, and whether you don't. So it might feel a bit counterintuitive to say break it up and have um, lots of small contracts, but that's actually the quickest way to do it and the way to have most competition in it. Why have we found ourselves in this situation? I know it's like a massive question, but like in terms of like a positive way forward, all of the things that you're saying sound very practical. This is a conversation that comes up again and again and again. Are we at a stage now where we actually need kind of a massive correction in thinking and approach? Um, well, I think that's been evident for a while. Like we're more than four years into the Rebuilding Ireland plan and I, and I don't think anybody would say it's been hitting its targets. And, you know, if you even go back to what the Department of Housing themselves were saying at the start of that, um, it, it seems really surprising now, but they were aiming for a two-bedroom apartment purchase price in Dublin then to be between two hundred and two hundred and sixty thousand. and 
And that's, that's you know, less than five years later, we're looking at double that price. So, you know, it, it hasn't, it hasn't, it hasn't been a success to go that route. Um, it, it is all solvable, but I suppose the other side of it is, you know, we all know that there are enormous amounts of, um, there's a lot of opportunity in, in property development and there's a lot of people involved and uh, that they're, you know, that those voices are very strong. Um, and so we have a system that very much favours um, a certain model of relying for our housing on speculative land development and very, being very over-reliant on speculative land development as one form of business. Um, so not not speaking against that, it has produced a huge amount of our housing in the past, but it was always balanced out with housing being produced through other means, whether it was cooperatives or the state directly uh, building housing, you know, that there was a kind of balancing in the market. Now, what we've moved into, um, particularly uh, in the last five years, is being very, very over-reliant on private developers um, uh, to the to the exclusion of everything else. And that distorts the market, I suppose, but it also means that what they produce starts to be the answer for everything. And clearly, you know, people who are building apartments for a certain market at 400,000 plus um, are, are not geared up or in the business of providing affordable housing. Um, that's not what they do. And, uh, and the state can't afford to, you know, keep buying that product when they could actually produce it themselves for 250,000. Um, so I, I think it needs a rethink. I mean, on, on the positive side, you know, a lot of the barriers that were there in, in 2019 or some of the barriers have, have now disappeared. We had a skills crisis last year in construction and that was inflating prices. That's gone away. Um, we have plenty of people now to do the work. Um, you know, we had a very overinflated land market that might settle down now, uh, given uh, you know how things are playing out in Dublin with rents likely to fall and uh, over time probably property dropping. Um, so some of the challenges that were there have actually gone away, and uh, you know it just takes the ingredients of land, which luckily. We have lots of in Ireland around the cities, um, and we have lots of it in public control. Um, and then the second one is is labour and skill. And again, as I said, we have a lot of that. Um, the barrier of finance was much bigger last year in terms of doing doing it on balance sheet for the government. That barrier has gone away. Um, so you know, on the optimistic side. <laughs> You know, a lot of things in some ways have fallen into place that uh, the, the kind of really big ones, which was a skills shortage and a lack of money last year, have resolved themselves. And um, uh, luckily, compared to a lot of other cities with housing problems, we do have land. Mm. Now, before you go, Orla, I want to just uh, touch briefly on a specialist subject of yours uh, that is related to, to COVID and indoor-outdoor spaces, and that's ventilation. Uh, this is something you've been kind of talking an awful lot about and the importance of it in, in terms of living uh, with the pandemic. Um, what aren't we doing that we should be doing on the subject of ventilation and, I suppose, design uh, solutions? Um, well, I think it's, I suppose as, as we've learned more about COVID over the last uh, nine months or so, um, a lot of what we, we understood at the beginning has changed considerably and there's been a huge amount of research now done and studies on outbreaks abroad um, and uh, developments with a lot of different sciences, I suppose, finding common ground and coming together. Um, and so it's now really clear that uh, mostly people are catching COVID from breathing it in. And they're, what they're doing is they're inhaling the virus from somebody who either 
is actively ill or or is a, a, a carrier who's not doesn't have symptoms, um, and that virus is being exhaled by somebody. It's building up in the air, a bit like cigarette smoke, and then people are inhaling it, and that's how they're becoming ill. So it's it's an issue indoors, uh, not not so much outdoors um, the risk is very low outdoors it's an issue in closed spaces so it's more of a problem in colder weather um, like like autumn conditions um, and it's more of a problem in crowds and it's more of a problem when people don't wear masks so I think when people if, if people understood better the science of how they put themselves at risk and keep themselves safe um, you could see how you can prevent spread within families you can prevent spread in cars by keeping a window open and not recirculating the air conditioning or the heating in your car um, and, and then by avoiding places that are the really really high risk for super spread so for example, being in a pub for several hours with no mask, eating and drinking and people shouting and singing is probably the most dangerous environment you could be in. Um, uh, in care homes and nursing homes where the windows aren't being opened and they're maybe overheated and the air is very, very dry. Uh, again, it's a very high risk and, and that can happen in hospitals. And then things like the meat plants and uh, fish plants where people work in, in chilled air, again, that's very dry, that's being recirculated. Uh, and if you look at the statistics, you know, behind the daily count, if you look at the numbers, you'll see that most of the uh, new cases are in all those settings, which means we have a plan now to to... Uh, educate people and to prevent these outbreaks uh, and that's really the problem if we can prevent those outbreaks um, we'll go a very long way actually to eliminate it and we don't need to wait for a vaccine you know we just keep in safe spaces um, outdoor if we all lived outdoors we wouldn't have a pandemic uh, you know it wouldn't be spreading enough in outdoor conditions for it to take hold Orla Hegarty, uh, architect, assistant professor at uh, UCD School of Architecture and in Andrea's words, the most sensible woman on the internet. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's your new title. Um, thanks, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Una. So, Una... What's getting in the sea this week? Well, I never get to do get in the sea, so I'm very happy about this. Getting in the getting in the sea um, this week are the fact that we have mink farms that breed animals for fur. Um, you may have been paying attention to the mink farm controversy in Denmark because the mink getting a different strain of coronavirus and people are freaked out that a mutation might jump to humans and cause loads of you know, well, we know what that causes. Um, but uh, the Department of Agriculture is basically uh, recommending, or Tony Holohan recommended that cull an all-farmed mink in Ireland. So we've got like three mink farms in Donegal, Leash and Kerry. Um, there's about 120,000 animals being bred for their fur and they're probably going to have to cull them now. I just think this is vile. Obviously, anything to do with destroying animals through food or clothing is gross. And I don't care if Big Mink comes after this podcast because it's getting in the sea. I'm really working hard on being a vegetarian. So am I. Um, it just feels like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, now, moving on from Mink, it's time for It's Bananas. Oh my God, it's Bananas. Bananas, don't you know when you say things and then they just come into your life way more? Like, I'm literally having bananas flying at my face all the time. 
everywhere I look now. TMI, Andrea. <laughs> Actual bananas, unfortunately. Um, this week's bananas. Oh, oh my goodness. So Harry Styles is mad into fashion and he left One Direction and went to paved his own career path and makes lovely songs and is very uh, good at kind of blurring lines around fashion. And this week he was the first man to ever appear on the cover of Vogue in its whole lifetime, which was huge. Um, And I kind of feel... This is a side note, but I kind of feel like magazines, like Vogue is a fashion magazine, but I kind of feel like women's magazines are kind of a bit bizarre now because what is, a, like, what? where are our interests? We're so not kind of so separated between men's interests and women's interests anymore. But anyway, that's a sideline. Vogue, fashion. Harry was on the front and the absolute in bits reaction to the fact that he was wearing um, a dress in the fashion shoot. Now, he looks quite fetching and I suppose there was a tax on his masculinity because he was wearing a dress. And it goes back to like the fact that men wore dresses before women and men wore high heels before women realized that they actually were the worst thing in the world. They were so uncomfortable. And then women started wearing them. So we have this blurring of cultural uh, things that we wear and what we do. But if you look at the Vogue Twitter reaction to what was said about the fact that he is not wearing trousers, but is in fact wearing a dress. um, It just is the most bananas thing in my life that something so simple can rile people so much Mm. Uh, I just find it so bananas that is bananas it's so bananas (laughs) and now it's time for our fave bits I'm going first go for it (laughs) just because we both have the same fave bit so I want to talk about it first Uh, my fave bit this week is Roisin Murphy's uh, live stream on Saturday night with Mixcloud Oh my God, it was the best thing that's ever happened in the whole of lockdown. Um, It was one of the most supreme experiences. um, And I didn't even mind that I was watching it through a screen. She's just the most brilliant creator. The way she directed the uh, stage, the visuals, the walk, the little samba exit. It was just phenomenal. I watched it two times in a row and it was just fab. It's one of your favourites. What did you think about it, Una? I thought that it was brilliant. I thought the staging of it was amazing. I thought the lighting was amazing. The performance was obviously amazing. I love that Roisin Murphy is coming into her, like even though she's been such an ama- a brilliant kind of singular artist all along in her career, there's just this sense that she's really kind of coming into her own and in her prime Um after releasing like loads of records and and just sticking to her vision and not necessarily playing the game. And I'm sure it can't be easy to like be so good and see lesser uh, artists get more acclaim. Not that you want to be comparing to yourself to people all the time, but it just really felt like an amazing piece of art. And I loved how the level of of thinking um, that must have gone into how they were going to overcome the idea that when you're doing one of these kind of audienceless events, that how do you overcome the lack of energy in a room 
and the fact that you're not necessarily getting that feedback or energy from audience and how they did that by introducing the crew into the actual performance that you could see under the hood that you were getting this like tension of like, will they pull it off? Will the show go to plan? Um, that you could see the amount of work that went into it um, from a production point of view. I, I just thought it was really, really exceptional. I mean, I, I just think she's she's up there with with Bjork and, and people like that. You know, she's just a, a really amazing artist. I always think whenever I question my fate in the world, I go back to Roisin and think about the power of Niche and how she has been so strong at keeping her personality and outlook and artistic vision to her even though she has been niche and that she hasn't like she probably wants to have global success which she has but like she probably wants to be much bigger but that she's kept the power of the niche and who she, and stay true to herself and I she, she acts as somebody that I look up to in terms of that whenever I question things. Yeah, totally. It's kind of like Peaches. You know, there's kind of like Bjork, Roisin, Peaches, Grace Jones, Anoni, like these kind of very singular artists who stick to their guns and while all around them, like loads of, they're inspiring loads and loads of other people and you know, sometimes really directly, like sometimes people are straight up ripping them off and that must be very frustrating because what you're doing is like more sophisticated, maybe not, doesn't have like the mass appeal, but you're so right. Like the fact that she's like played her on Furrow is really inspiring. And it was kind of interesting, the fact that Kylie did her live stream uh, like a week before, mm. would have cost, I'd say, multiple multiple times the amount of what of Roisin's did and it was just um a very different feeling yeah and Roisin's making art you know yeah not that Kylie isn't it's just that I mean you, even the two, like again you shouldn't be comparing people just because they're bringing out records at the same time or whatever but like the that that album like the Roisin Machine album is it's her best album and it's so amazing to be making like to keep pushing yourself and keep excelling um, and bettering yourself, you know, I just think she's she's really incredible. And I think the world is, with this album, even waking up to it even more, like there was that big piece and profile in the New York Times. And yeah, I just think she's so fucking underrated while also being hugely loved. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, more more fave bits, please. I'm, I'm interested in these now. My next fave bit is... I watched this documentary last night of the rise of Jordan Peterson. Now, obviously, people might not expect that to be my fave bits, but I just thought it was really interesting because I um, I think he's a maniac. <laughs> and it was really interesting to see this documentary. Um, and I didn't think he was a maniac before, but I watched this documentary. Oh, my God. He is... He is bananas and the effect of uh, his kind of journey has had on the world and mm. it has run in in tandem with the kind of Trump's rise as well. I just found it really, really interesting. And the thing, one of the things that really stands out is all his art. And it's, it's a very obvious thing, but his whole house is covered in dictators artwork. Like, Shut up, really? 
Yeah. And he's like, I just, I have it there because I want to understand them. I'm like, okay, that doesn't sound correct. <laughs> um, but, and then he's kind of like, it explains, he's like, I was just looking at like Hitler's rise and, and looking at what he was doing and, um, and I wanted to learn more about it. And it, he learned so much about it that he uses what the same techniques. And in the documentary, one of his old friends comes out and writes an article against him going, I used, like, I know him really well. And I, I think now he's just dangerous. Um, it's well worth a watch. It just is. It's fucking bananas. Mm. When people, when, when I say people, I mean, some men when some men back when you could actually socialize and occasionally like you know when some random guy corners you in a smoking section and like talks at you about oh, why you're wrong please don't dangle that parrot oh. <laughs> things i miss about real life anyway inevitably you just kind of have to like you know stand there and and, and listen and um, inevitably it all comes back to like Jordan Peterson, you know, have you read blah, 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 10 rules for life or whatever. And it's just, like, <laughs> it's like my added, my, my response to that is like, there are other books, you know, <laughs> you know, it doesn't all have to be this one book, this one, this one person. I always find that really funny. Um, something else in your fave bits is a piece of apparel. It is. And it's to celebrate the 10 years that my love heart emotion of uh, clubbing is celebrating. Mother is 10 um, and they are selling some sweaters um, of We Will Dance Again um, in celebration, keeping them going praying for the return on the dance floor and so if you can do give them some support so we can get through to the other side and get on that fucking dance floor get sweaty and beam me up with all the box oh just imagine that return to the dance floor so yeah buy a mother sweater be sent my fave bits we've covered Roisin Murphy extensively so we don't need to go back on that. So my only other fave bit that I have is I watched this documentary on Netflix called Sky Ladder uh, and it's about this Chinese artist who is like turbo famous and works a lot with fireworks and fire. Um, and this is a the story of one man's quest to build a ladder made from fireworks into the sky. <laughs> You know, it passed the time. <laughs> and I'd recommend it. Okay, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and Acastria Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack, Sarah Fox, to all our design. You can find links to all our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. Uh, if you like this, join our Patreon. Uh, give us a review. Tell your friends. Um, as usual, if you have any feedback, suggestions for subjects uh, you'd like us to look at for an episode, slide into our DMs. Yeah, baby. Um, now, this week's tuna chicken roll, we barely mentioned her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is, in fact, Roisin Murphy. Surprise, surprise. So she did this version of Forevermore and it was just like the beat of the remix of this version. I don't think we're going to be able to find it the exact version. I hope they release the mixed page uh, show, but 
it just brought back how much of an absolute tuna chicken roll forevermore is. The remix of it is next level, but if we can't get that for now, we'll just go with the the Ridge, which is also an absolute tuna fucking chicken roll. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Warren. This has been United Ireland, and that was Oscar Trainer Road. Why can't we build gas like the old days? And if I drive-